0: Talking books on South 106 to 108. The book, in a way, is a, is, a, is a futile attempt to you know connect with him around this around you know this something that's been so central to my life, poetry. I didn't set out to make it that, um, but I think in the course of writing it, it just became clear that you know one of the people I would have most love to talk to about all this was my dad and he was gone and that in a way that's always the position poets are in they're always talking to someone who's not there trying to reach across the the big expanse of the page or time or something to connect with another person but in the moment of writing poets are so alone um but they're trying to make something for other people so you know maybe that's just a human position we're all in at times and the poem is a place where people try to work it out
1: the poet is always our contemporary the incisive words of english essayist writer and critic virginia Woolf. hello how are you and you're very welcome to talking books i'm susan cahill it's lovely to have your company this evening what is poetry and how should we enjoy it? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American poet, writer and editor, Matthew Sabruder, whose latest book, Why Poetry, has just been published by CCC Publishing, where Matthew argues, it's a powerful thing when a poem finds its way, directly or otherwise, to the biggest issues in our social lives. Yet even the greatest poets can stumble when they start to bend their poems to a political purpose. Matthew goes on to state, Good poets do not deliberately complicate something just to make it harder for a reader to understand. The meaning of the poem resides on the page and is available to an attentive reader. So, why do we read poetry and what does it do?
0: Hello, my name is Matthew Zapruder. I'm a poet. I live in Oakland, California, and I've published four books of poetry, a book of translations, and recently a book of prose called Why Poetry. I'm a professor at St. Mary's College of California. I teach graduate creative writing, and undergraduate English courses. And I was originally born in Washington, D.C., and was a Russian literature scholar for a while until I discovered poetry in my 20s, and now here I am.
1: Really well done on the book, White Poetry. I have to say it's very warm and accessible, Matthew, and it brings up so many different types of questions. And uh, it was a joy to read, I have to say. So really well done on that. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. and sure we can take it from there. Do you think poetry can save us in some way? Or is that a bit ridiculous to even ask that question?
0: (laughs) No, it's not ridiculous. I think it's a good question to ask of any form of art or maybe any human activity nowadays. Um, save us, maybe. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think that the idea of everyone suddenly starting to read poetry and changing their behavior and changing their relations to each other and to the world is, on the one hand, completely unrealistic and uh, seems silly. But on the other hand, you know, when I do um, read poetry with people or teach poetry, and in my own life having read poetry, I have felt a significant change in my relations and so for the better. So I think I have mixed feelings about that as I do about most things. Do
1: you think we can compare poetry to people? And what I mean by that is to say that, you know, the more you get to know a person, the more all their peculiarities or their form seems so straightforward and normal and and almost predictable in one way. And that we develop a comfort within the knowledge. So do you think we could apply that um, to poetry?
0: I do. I think it's a good analogy. Uh, the poet W. H. Auden once wrote um, that a poem is a kind of pseudo-person, and uh, I think that that is true. I think that when you get to know a poem or or the work of a poet, um, it can get more familiar in the same way that uh, as you so aptly described, you know, a person gets more familiar and as you know them. But also, I would say too that there are depths continuing depths and continuing mysteries um, that a poem or or a poet's work can continue to reveal and never stop revealing, in the same way that that's true for a person. You know, we think we know people, even people we're very close to, and then somehow um, new things arise, and it's also even true for our relations to ourselves.
1: You've entitled the book Why Poetry but before we get on to the why I think it's important looking at the what. (laughs) Like Uh what exactly is poetry because some people it's words on a page other people just find it a bit stuffy and ambiguous and then for other people it's performance and it's spoken word. So what is poetry to you?
0: Well that's a that's a good question and I think um, that for me the title in a way answers that because I, you know, I've been a poet now for, you know, 20-plus more years and been teaching it and writing it. I'm also an editor uh, at a publishing house, and I was an editor for the New York Times magazine. I mean, I've, I've read and worked with a lot of poetry and poets as from the outside and also from the inside, of course, making it myself. And one thing I definitely can say is that um, it's what poetry is is continually changing and surprising me, and I'm, I'm coming across always. New forms of it, um, so it's very hard to say what it is. Um, and one thing I think we can all agree on is that it has something to do with language. Um, it's 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 some kind of use of language in a way that is not usual or not or not the way we usually use the material. But the title, coming back to the title, um, I thought I thought about this a long time, and what occurred to me is is that. Maybe what isn't the best question. Maybe why is a better question in the sense that poems are the use of, of this familiar material language, but for a different purpose than we usually use it for. So, so why do we make poems? Why do we read poems? Why do we go in search of poetry is, is, is a question that will lead us to more interesting answers than simply what it is or isn't. Um, which you know you can just talk endlessly about that and never really understand it
1: i'm just wondering if we look at all different types of disciplines or ideas or whatever they are and just crudely look at what is the purpose of it in some way are we missing the beauty and the um and the kind of the spirit in it all
0: well just following a little bit on the up on that vague answer i just gave to <laughs> a good question about what poetry is you're, 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 that question you just asked me about the purpose of things, I mean, really, the book is about genre, um, and different genres of writing have different purposes. Um, we write a newspaper editorial to do one thing, and we write a sermon to do another thing, and we write a novel to do a, a different thing, and poetry we write to do something else. A different thing than all those things do. And so your question is sort of saying, well, it reminds me of that famous line from the Wordsworth poem, We murder to dissect, you know, which is like this idea that if you talk too much about something or tear it apart too much, that you'll kill it. Um, I don't think poetry suffers when we look at it more closely, um, both as a general phenomenon and then specific poems. I think. That poetry thrives under attention. And the problem, really, with most discussions of poetry that I read or hear is that people aren't being specific enough about it. They're being too general and too, um, and they're saying a lot of things, but they're not actually looking enough at the poems themselves.
1: Matthew, you highlight uh, different types of poetry or genres, as you would see it, um, throughout the book. And one of the ones that um, really uh, struck me on so many different levels was Somebody Blew Up America by Amiri uh, Baraka. Can you tell me about that poem? And I might get you to read from it because it is an astounding piece of poetry.
0: Yes, I am happy to talk about it. So this poem was written by the very well-known late, uh, American poet, Amiri Baraka, African-American, um, and he at the time was poet laureate of New Jersey, I believe, and this was written after 9, the 9 attacks in New York, um, and it's a very, it's kind of a long, uh, ranty, um, angry, confused, Poem that takes those events and sort of expands the idea of America being blown up into these, into this symbolic uh, idea of the whole country being in crisis and under attack. But from from where, from whom? Where? What's the source of all this? Um, of all this chaos and upset and and a disappointment and the difference between the American ideals and the actual reality of life in America, whether it has to do with economic inequality or racism or sexism or anything else. And that's a question that's only become obviously more and more, um, pertinent, uh, today. And so the poem is, but the poem is difficult because it, it, at times, uh, kind of repeats these incorrect legends about, um, about 9-11, including that uh, that somehow Israelis were informed before the attack and so didn't go to work. This is kind of anti-Semitic, um, horrifying, uh, um, false legend. Um, and so it sort of repeats that in the poem, which became a source of great controversy and upset, and ultimately Baraka had to leave his post as, uh, Poor Lord of New Jersey, and I personally, as an American Jew, find that upsetting. That that's in the poem, and yet the poem is so marvelous, and and I think really hits a deep chord of of anger and upset that I can really relate to. So here's a little bit from uh, Baraka's poem. Somebody blew up America. It's it's just it's just a section in the middle. Who make money from war? Who make dough from fear and lies? Who want the world like it is? Who want the world to be ruled by imperialism and national oppression and terror, violence, and hunger and poverty? Who is the ruler of hell? Who is the most powerful? Who you know ever seen God, but everybody's seen the devil? Like an owl exploding in your life, in your brain, in yourself, like an owl who knows the devil, all night, all day if you listen, like an owl exploding in fire, we hear the questions rise in terrible flame, like the whistle of a crazy dog, So that's part of the poem and you can hear, um, he just keeps asking who, 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 until, you know, the poet himself realizes that he starts to sound like this owl, um, who, who, and then the owl becomes a character in the poem. This amazing, um, angry, confused owl that stands in for who's supposed to be wise. That's the legend, right? But, but doesn't know anything. And that's, that owl kind of stands in for our own, our own um, confusions.
1: It's an interesting question to ask, though, whether poets should always address the political and what their job is. And depending on what's going on at any given time, it's hard not to think why a poet should not be allowed to address the political, or should always have to kind of avoid being too political in some ways, because it's next to impossible, no matter what artistic form you take. Isn't
0: it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is always, there's often been a tension between the political and the literary for some writers, and I think the reason can be as simple as the fact that politics brings up such strong feelings of conviction in people that they often can't um, have a more open, flexible mind. which makes sense. I mean, the issues are are, are are very important and are relate to the future of people's lives, and so I, it's understandable why people get worked up, but sometimes that kind of black-and-white conviction about what's right and what's wrong doesn't lend itself to the experience of art. But on the other hand, I think that um, that it can. It can very much lead to the making of great art, and so I was interested in the book and trying to find some examples of when that type of uh, passion about about a political or social matter did lead to the making of great poetry, and so that's in in the chapter I read from, um, and then several other, pl- other places in the book, I try to talk about this. In my own work, I'm I'm I often will address political issues as they as they come up. Um, I always laugh when someone says the job of the poet, I think. My initial reaction is to say, I think poets shouldn't have any jobs at all. <laughs> I, think be, I think we should be free. But, um, but of course, we live in the world, so we all, all the poets I know have jobs. And I don't, think, I don't think anyone should or shouldn't be political if they don't want to be. I, don't, I would never criticize an artist for not being political, and I would never criticize an artist for being political. I think that's absurd. Um, I think poets should do and artists should do what they need to do.
1: In your introductions, um, Matthew, you you argue that understanding poetry requires forgetting many incorrect things we've learned in school. And you go on to say that we should accept what is right before us on the page. Do you think it could be argued that we have, or some readers have, unreal expectations of poetry and what poetry can do. Like they presume they're going to be taken to this um, maybe psycho-spiritual space of sorts, somewhere yeah. sublime, and then it's not really happening for them or they feel they don't really get it or they, they pick up maybe T.S. Eliot's *The Wasteland and they know it's a really important poem and they just don't get all the symbolism or whatever is going on and they rush in and they just go, I just don't get this. This means nothing to me. reminds
0: me of when I was a kid and um, um, I was very fortunate. My parents... Uh, took me to Europe, me and my brother and sister to Europe, you know, because my parents loved traveling. And so they they took us along on a trip and we were young. And we had all, we had heard about the Louvre, the Louvre. You know, you're going to go to the Louvre. It's this magical palace of art. And i remember walking in and just looking around all these paintings and just being instantly kind of immediately bored out of my mind and then feeling disappointed because i had been told that this was some kind of transformative experience. (laughs) Um, But it just wasn't, In I just wasn't in the mood. I suppose. Um, I I completely agree with you that that poetry suffers from these unrealistic expectations. Um, And it's not the only form of art. Uh, I think, you know, classical music often has the same problem. And um, we're told, yeah, that that somehow it's the sublime, transformative experience. And the minute we read a poem, we should be uh, enlightened and transformed and transported. And that's often not the case. Um, So yeah, I completely agree that we'd be better off just going through the poem focused on trying to just see what's there, at least at first, and really read very slowly and carefully and thoughtfully about what's actually on the page. That seems like a better place to put our minds.
1: You talk about the poetic state of mind and, you know, the space that you go into and how it all evolves and so on. But I was just wondering, do you think everyone can get into that poetic state of mind? Do you think it's for, for everybody, it's accessible to all? Or do you think you have to have a certain type of mindset or come from a certain type of discipline in order to kind of access all that stuff?
0: Well, I mean, sometimes people will say they don't remember their dreams, um, but I doubt there's anyone in the world who doesn't have dreams. Um, if you, if you have dreams, if you have an unconscious, um, if you are able to, you know, if your mind has the ability to go to that place. And I think all human minds do, then, then that poetic state of mind is, is somewhere in you. I think there's people who don't think it's important um, or think it's Or they don't have time for it or it makes them uncomfortable or something. And that's, you know, I mean, I understand that, but I don't think, I don't think you have to be any special kind of person or, or do any special kind of thing to, to get there. I mean, I've known poets and lovers of poetry who come from every single part of life. I've met people who do every conceivable thing, who love poems. And um, so I, 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 I never would think that somebody couldn't get to that space if they wanted to. They just need to find the right
1: poems. Yeah. I loved your um, your, your chapter on negative capability. I think it was Keats who, who coined the term, he believed something on the lines of that the poem is also placed to remain in what he called half-knowledge. And it's a lovely idea, that, you know, to, to come at life from that kind of position of half-knowledge and always knowing and always wondering. And, you know, he, he he, the idea that, you know, within that half-knowledge that leads to a certain type of truth. Do you agree with him?
0: Yeah, I think in generally speaking, it's a good idea to agree with Keats. Um, so mostly yes. <laughs> um, yeah, he says that in one of his letters to his brothers. Um, and he was actually thinking about Shakespeare when he says that he was trying to understand for himself as a young poet what it was that, you know, was at the heart or the center of, of what made someone a great, a great poet. And so he was trying to think a lot about Shakespeare's, um, the qualities in Shakespeare's work. That 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 are so powerful and continue to be so powerful, and came up, he came upon this idea of negative capability, which is that ability to be kind of in contradiction. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald says something uh, similar: uh, that the ability of a first, the, the, the mark of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that it's. A good space to get into both as a writer and a reader um, because it's it's not a space of just weak ambiguity and thinking everything is all the same and nothing matters, that nihilistic space of ambiguity. It's a space of passion and conviction and interest in ideas and in language, but one that's flexible. So it's both committed and flexible. And that's exciting as a writer and it's exciting as a reader to be in those in that place. Can
1: we talk about depression in the poem? Do you think poetry always has to have an uplift? Or is it within those kind of spaces, those, I suppose, subliminal spaces, if you will, that there is a kind of a, a, a joy to be found?
0: Oof, that's a big question. <laughs> um,
1: I, know that I, you write, uh, I know that you write, you know, poets are alchemists of nothingness.
0: Yeah, um, I like that word alchemist. Um, you know, that sort of, Human search to turn things into gold, um, which of course never really paid off, so to speak. But um, but um, nevertheless, people kept doing it. And poets, I think, are the same. They're they're trying to turn this ungraspable substance of language or meaning or the ineffable feeling that that something matters into an object—a poem that can that can take them somewhere and could take a reader somewhere. So in that sense, poets are extremely hopeful. Um, and you know, I have met depressed poets. I've even been one at times myself and I've met joyful ones. In my experience, um, joy is a better place to make poetry than depression. Depression is just a tough place to make or do anything. Um, it's a kind of, if you have real depression, it's just, it's sickness. So, you know, but that's not to say, I mean, I think that most poets, you know, are very close to, um, very close to the feelings of mortality and, and, and sadness that, you know, lurk everywhere. (laughs) So I don't know if they're depressed, but they're, but they're, you know, most poets I know, but they're definitely susceptible to, to, to melancholy.
1: Well, I suppose consolation comes um under different hues, if you will, and that some people can get a sense of hope within those kind of melancholic moments in poetry, in those spaces.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean we were talking about Keats and, you know, his his um Ode to a Nightingale is a is a classic example of that. I mean, that's a sad poem that comes really from a knowledge that he was dying young of tuberculosis. But it's um but it's and it's full of kind of reg- feelings of regret and anticipatory loss so it's 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 a sad poem, but it is a poem that brings great joy has brought great joy to um to people reading it too um and he certainly felt great joy in writing it um in the midst of his sadness, and that's the whole point of the poem um you sing despite you know, despite everything that's going on around you because you need to sing and you need to survive as best you can.
1: I might get you to read from Robert Hayden's Those Wintry Sundays. It's an extraordinarily beautiful and touching poem and it's such a, it it touches on so many different aspects of family life. You might tell us about him first.
0: So this poem, Those Winter Sundays, is a poem by Robert Hayden, is an African-American poet, of the 20th century, um, wonderful poet. And this particular poem of his is quite well known. And it's short. I can just read the whole thing if you'd like. But those winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know? Of love's austere and lonely offices. You can hear in the poem that he's, um, you know, kind of, it's, it's Sunday, and it's cold, and he's hearing his father get up and make the house ready for the rest of the family. Um, it's a complicated feeling he's having, because he mentions in the middle of the poem the chronic angers of that house, which seems connected to his father's presence, for sure. And, and then is looking back and, and sort of regretting his own indifference in relation to his father, his, his coldness. Um, in relation to his dad who did all these things, but also not over-sentimentalizing it because clearly the father-son relationship was difficult. Um, in the book, I talk about this word, offices, um, and I describe it as a symbol in the sense that it is literally what it is in the poem. Uh, he means, when he says offices, he means, you know, those he's referring to a secular version of that a religious concept of, of religious rituals offices. Um, but in, 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 in the, in the poem, obviously it takes on many different meanings. And in my own life, I, I, I it made me think of my own relation to my dad and his, how he used to go to the office. And when I was a kid, I would hear that word said a lot. My father was a lawyer and he spent a lot of time at the office. He would, you know, he worked very hard. And so, That's kind of where my dad was. So when I read this poem and I read the end of it, Love's Austere and Lonely Offices, and because it's a poem about fathers and sons or a father and a son, it just resonated so deeply with me and my own experience, even though my life is very different from Hayden's. I didn't grow up poor and obviously didn't grow up African American um, and grew up in a different time and a different place, but yet I love how poems can just almost reach out when it's the right poem. And connect with a person's experience. Of course, this poem was for me, and it might not be a poem for other people, or it might not resonate so much, but there are those poems waiting for each person. And, the, and what's waiting in them is not only the experience, it's, it's the words themselves. And for me, that word was offices, but for you, it will be a different word that will sort of connect you to, to that poem in, in all kinds of complicated and, and, and interesting ways.
1: I suppose it's all about symbolism really isn't it?
0: Yeah, well that's a difficult word, uh symbolism because on the one hand it can mean um it can mean you know this kind of awful way we're taught in school that 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 you know that all the things in the poem or some of the things in the poem really quote unquote really mean something else they're symbols for something else which is uh you know absurd. And just not how poetry works, but we're but we're taught that all the time. So, so part of what happened was is when I was r- writing the book, I thought I want to I want to argue with that idea. I want to I want to you know dispel this way that we're taught um, to read poetry as if the words in it don't really mean what they say. Um, but as I thought about symbols and symbolism more and read more and researched more, I realized there's this other meaning of the symbol, this way that, uh, you know, things can like uh, resonate into the unknown. They can, well, or like that word offices that I was just talking about, it can, it can mean what it means, but it can also be far more resonant and far more, more, more significant. And so that, that's sort of how I started to think of the symbol as being, as being, you know that, that that kind of symbolic meaning, I think, is central to poetry. When I was thinking about that um, that idea that we're taught that, you know, the words sometimes mean something different, um, I was I have something in the book um, that's a quote from the the Macar of Glasgow. Um, so Makar is like sort of a it's an old Scottish term for poet laureate, and so her name is. Liz Lockhead, which is a, seemed like a great name for a Scottish poet laureate, um, Liz Lockhead. And she says this, the way poetry is taught at the moment is absolutely appalling. They teach poetry as a problem rather than a joy, and that's disgraceful. It's clear that even teachers think poetry is a code. I have been asked by a boy who emailed me once, when you wrote that poem about the bull, what did you really want to say? His education had allowed him to get the misapprehension that a poem is a code, trying to get a message across.
1: And some people so, could find that code very, uh, you know, overcomplicated and a uh, bit woolly and unnecessary. And it doesn't have to be so. And that's not well, just to do with the teaching; how, it's to do with how the poet writes it as well.
0: It's just not how most poems work. They're not. They're not. They're not secret codes. I mean, I'm sure there are there are rare instances in which poems have coded language. There's a word, and it really, quote, unquote, really means a different thing. That, that can happen in a poem. Pretty much anything can happen in a poem, so, so that can happen in a poem. But it's actually quite rare. Um, most of them, even in the most complicated poems, the ones that we're told are so difficult, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and we're all, we're all sort of beaten about the head by that poem, um, often at a relatively young age. And, and confused by it, and, and told that it has all these secret meanings, but that's but it actually, Elliot, mostly in that poem is using language exactly the way that we would all use it, and, and the, what he says, the words he says, he means them exactly in the way that he says them. So it's it's that's not what's complicated about that poem, and that's not what's complicated about most poetry, actually. So Liz Lockhead is correct. We we you know we're we're we're, we're You know, we're not getting the right message about poetry in school a lot of the time, unless we're lucky enough to have a great teacher.
1: Well, let's look at one monumental poem, When the War is Over. It was written in 1967 at the height of the Vietnam War, and it's so unbelievably prescient, and it speaks so much to where we are today. Um, It's a phenomenal achievement, isn't it, as a poem?
0: it, It is, and it's from a book that's called The Life." Which was published in 1967, and a 50th anniversary edition of the book was just published by Copper Canyon Press, who is also the publisher of my poetry books. And I wrote a little introduction to this book, which was really quite an honor because this this Debbie S. Merwin and this book are um, Merwin's poetry in general, and this book in particular um, are were so important to me as a as a, as a young writer. Um, and I can read the 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 poem it's short. Um, and I'll just say beforehand, so Merlin um, is still alive. He lives on, on in Maui, Hawaii, and he, you know, has been one of America's great poets for you know the past half century, if not longer. And uh, yeah, this 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 book, The Lice, was written in '67, as you said, and kind of at the height of the Vietnam War, you know, and 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 the disruption and and political chaos in America was very present for people. So a lot of artists and poets felt compelled to write political work. And this this book, The Lice, is very political, but also very magical and mysterious. And so maybe you can feel a little bit of that in this short poem. The poem is called When the War is Over. When the war is over, we will be proud, of course, The air will be good for breathing at last. The waters will have been improved. Salmon and the silence of heaven will migrate more perfectly. The dead will think the living are worth it. We will know who we are, and we will all enlist again.
1: It's quite something, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, it silences you at the end of it, right? I mean, that, and we will all enlist again. It's so chilling, right? It's like that you feel the irony of this, this mentality that, that a war could ever improve things. Um, and you know, I, I think just it's dripping with this kind of horrified irony and it's so seductive, that reasoning. New song, 106 to 108.
1: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American poet, writer, and editor Matthew Sapruder, whose latest book, Why Poetry, has just been published by CCC Publishing. I asked Matthew about the work of American writer and cultural critic Roxane Gay and what she's offered the world in terms of the debate on language.
0: Yeah. She's she's a very important um intellectual force and writer in um in, in America and she's you know, she writes both nonfiction, you know, essays about cultural matters and she's also herself a, a you know, a, a producer of literature novels and stories. Um in the in the in the book I refer to um a her she she wrote an essay about a very disturbing um, incident of in which a in which a young girl was sexually assaulted by multiple people. And she writes about the way that event was written about and how sort of studiously the 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 journalist avoided using the word rape um, and what that meant. Why why it was that people seemed to be just steering away from the very obvious, you know, both you know factual and also legal term that would be appropriate for this for the situation and she related that to a kind of unwillingness in us to confront the reality of what had happened and i i connect that idea with a, a well-known poem by audrey rich by the same title rape which is also uncomfortable and difficult to read for obvious reasons but and and try to relate to this larger idea that poetry in contrast to this idea that poems somehow are unreal or that they or that they are coded language or symbols symbolistic in the sense of, you know, words not meaning what they say. Actually poems do the opposite thing. They bring us closer to the reality of things. And and, and sometimes upsetting in difficult ways, in particular around this concept, but also about other things.
1: It's amazing though how language, depending on how it's put together, how it can shock people, how it can be seen as so unreasonable. But sometimes it's necessary to put those types of truths out there.
0: Well, now we're living in a time uh, when there's a group of people in America who are been head spearheaded by our by our you know, our president, dear leader, who who use they use language in shocking ways, uh, but it's not actually what real what they're saying. I the sense that they're lying or, or not or not being precise. And often what they say is simultaneously shocking and just factually incorrect or or doesn't make any sense, but it's just said to shock. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's just made me feel even more so that poems have something to offer in their in their accuracy.
1: You have a lovely line from Ralph Angel, poetry has always existed and always will exist because there will always be the need to say that which cannot be said. It's gorgeous, isn't it?
0: Uh-huh. It is. I heard him. I was in a... He was giving a talk in a in a kind of unremarkable room at the university where I was teaching many years ago at the new school in New York City. It was in downtown Manhattan. He was sort of giving a talk kind of almost in this, like, cafeteria. And there were people who were um, you know there to hear the talk, but then there were also people who were kind of, you know, going to and fro with their trays of food. And so it was very... Uh, it was, it was uh, you know... Um, a funny place to be, be be giving a giving a little talk about poetry, but um yeah, I remember him saying that and just thinking that 's it that 's precisely it. He said it, you know exactly the way it needed to be said, and so I definitely wanted to make sure you know for many, many years, I was collecting notes and ideas for this book, and I remember making a note of that and saying someday when I write this book about poetry i will i 'll put that in there.
1: You dedicate the book to your dad and at the end of the book you've kind of some lovely uh, biographical bits some very personal intimate bits about when you were writing the book and your dad um, got very unwell and um, there is a lovely part when you talk about how your dad came to poetry quite late in life and there's a lovely passage when your dad was at a poetry reading with you and you know he um, he fell asleep and then he kind of woke up again <laughs> and he, he wrote you a lovely email and it actually made me cry. I thought it was just it was just so beautiful. And he, he wrote you something saying, Am I hooked and unable to grow or just enjoying myself? Love dad. It was a lovely moment mm-hmm. in the book and you don't normally get that type of stuff in books. But then when yeah. you're dealing with the expanse of poetry, um that that's that's the joy really.
0: Yeah, well, um, yeah, my my dad died a, you know, a little over ten years ago. He died, um, Oh, young relatively young in his late sixties of um of this kind of awful brain tumor. It's the same one that uh, John McCain has and Ted Kennedy died of. It's 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 um this, you know, kind of incurable.